All right. We um, have concluded Exodus, right? So if you are joining us now and you're wondering, all right, what's going on? We're done with Exodus. So get over it. We're now in Acts. Uh, and we are in the second missionary journey, so you're wondering, well, I thought there was a first, right? And there is a third. Um, we'll explain that a little bit, why we're starting with the second. Uh, one of our class rituals of my favorite seminary professor was, he would sing, he'd have our class sing a couple of hymns, and then he would pray, and then he'd get into the business at hand of the lessons that we were going through. And some of my, and my brother as well, we were in the class together, and several classes together, some of our fondest memories, some of our... Uh, most impactful moments at seminary were in that beginning part of class, that 10, 15 minutes where we would sing hymns together, 60 future pastors, 100 future pastors, singing about God and singing about hopeful realities of being used by him in ministry. Um, Tremendous time, an absolute tremendous time. And then Dr. Hannah would pray. And uh, to this day, um, if he would just hit a tape recorder and record his prayers, I would listen to them for hours and all of us would too. My wife had some classes with him. I mean, we literally, you were, you were swept up into the wonder of God. You were swept up into the, the depths of the realities of his grace for you and his love for you. It was truly amazing. Um, well, one day we sang a hymn called I Surrender All. Everybody know that hymn? Okay, it goes like this, line one. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. And then the chorus, right? I surrender all, right? I surrender all. I'm not gonna sing it. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Line two goes like this. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures, all forsaken, right? Take me, Jesus, take them now. Then the hymn again, I surrender all the course. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Five times we sang that. Five lines, five times that chorus. I mean, passionate, with feeling, like in unity and camaraderie in the gospel. Uh, And then our professor, our favorite professor. In fact, he got favorite professor of the word almost every single year. They just had to give second place to somebody else every once in a while. And uh, right when we're done, he says to us, you know, we're just looking at him. He says to us, we're ready to break into the lesson. He says, every time I sing that hymn, I lie. That hymn makes a liar out of me. Because I don't surrender all. And neither do you. And just like that, you know, 60 lives were turned inside out and upside down. Right? Right? And that was his intent, because he wants to give us reality in the Christian life. He wants to pop our spiritual balloons and get us out of spiritual Disney wonderland. And he wants to give us the weightier, real stuff of life. And I thank God for that. And I thank God that he did that for four years. You know what? We've come to a book in the Bible called Acts, and we've come to the second missionary journey in Acts, and its whole goal is to turn your life upside down. Now, it's got a great track record because it already did it historically. It's done. That second missionary journey turned the world upside down. The world has changed because of that, and it's meant to today to continue to do that. So everyone needs their world turned upside down. So I want to welcome you to the second missionary journey where where the missionary journey does exactly that. It turns your world upside down. 
So please stand for the hearing of God's word. I'm going to read. When we get to verse 39, you know what I like to do when we get to verse 39? Can we all read that together? Is that all right? Okay. Here we go. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we acknowledge that our strength is in you. We acknowledge that the imperishable seed has divine life and divine power in it. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, grow the gospel in our lives. Bigger, brighter, better. And we continue to pray, Lord, for Kyle and for Kelly and for the girls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so why the second missionary journey this spring? Why? Well, the first reason is this. Six years ago, we did the first missionary journey. I hate unfinished business. We've got to go finish it, and I don't know if we'll get to the third one, but we'll get to it eventually. Do you know that when Calvin was banished from Geneva for four years, uh, we don't know the exact text, so I'm making up the text, but when he was banished for four years, he got back into his old pulpit after four years of not being there, four years of not preaching to his congregation, because he was gone, banished, and it was on September 13th, 1541. He says to his congregation, Please open your Bibles to Isaiah 40, verse 6. The last sermon he preached four years prior was Isaiah 40, verse 5. When he was sick, he was gone from the pulpit for nine months, and it's legendary that, again, he just got in the pulpit. Please open your Bibles to the exact next verse that he left left off before he got sick. So we've got to finish. That's the first reason. The second is this. Well, no, I got one other thing I need to say. Acts 1 through 15 is on the website. So I know those of you that are inclined towards OCD, and you know who you are. You know, and I can sniff you out because I am one, right? So you know you have to go in order. So go listen to the 1 through 15 so you'll feel okay. You won't hyperventilate when you're here, and we start at 15 and 16, all right? It'd also be helpful if you would listen to the first three sermons on, the, on Acts, Okay? And the reason why is this, is that chapters 1 through 2 give their own lens for Acts. Have you ever thought about this? I wish the Bible would give its own lens for how to see it and interpret it, because so many people read it so many different ways. I mean, why doesn't the Bible say, hey, here's how you read me? Why doesn't the Bible say, look, you want to theologize, theologize this way. You want to apply it, apply it this way. Why doesn't the Bible do that? Well, the Bible does. In fact, in Luke 24, we're given that Jesus interpreted the scriptures for two people. And he actually gives a lens on how to read and apply all the Bible in light of himself. So Acts, what it does in chapters 1 and 2 is it actually gives you its own lens for reading it. 
seeing it and applying it. So you'll get the ascension there, the ascension lens. You'll get the, um, the apostles lens. You'll get the coming of the Holy Spirit lens, and this is what you need to know. These are all non-repeatable external events. They're not repeatable internal experiences that you and I are supposed to have. Yeah, that is a massive continental divide on one way to read scripture and another way to read scripture. If you read those first two chapters seeing that the ascension is a once and for all unrepeatable historic event that Jesus accomplished and the apostles were too and the coming of the Holy Spirit was, you're not going to go around and try to take those events and say, how do I reproduce these in my life and reproduce these in the life of the church? So it would be helpful if you did that. It would save, save us some um, emotional energy probably. Uh, second reason why the second missionary journey, we want to grow as a church in fruitful ministry or effective ministry. We want to grow in being a part of help changing the world. I mean, really. I'm not just into the saying and the slogan. When I was in campus ministry, every year we say we're going to reach the world by the end of this year. After about 10 years of that, it was like, really? Really? You know, and then 2000 was the other big one. You know, we're going to reach the world by the year 2000. Okay. Well, you can see that's come and gone. But, but can we, do we want to be a part of really changing the world? The answer is, yeah, we do. Some people think ministry is about being successful. And you've got to have big numbers. You've got to have big budgets. You've got to have big ministries. You've got to have big physical, visible impact. There's a big difference between successful ministry and fruitful ministry. And we're going to learn the difference. Some people think that ministry is about being faithful. This is going to shock you. You know, believe the right things, do the right things, and especially do the right things rightly. Faithfully plodding away. There is a big difference between faithful ministry and fruitful ministry. And we're going to learn the difference. Others of us think, look, my life is so messed up, I can't even think about ministering to others, Jeff. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, I am, and even if I could, there's no way God is going to want to use me. I mean, I'm damaged goods. I've blown my Christian witness. It's ruined. How can I even think about or even participate in being used by God in the ministry of other people's lives? Uh, if that is you, please hear me. The second missionary journey is for you. It was written with you in mind. Because the second missionary journey does not begin with the fireworks and the celebratory celebration of, of unbelievable success right out of the gate. The second missionary journey begins with a massive failure. And that's the point. So are you ready? Are you ready to start? Let's do. The second missionary journey of Paul starts very significantly. If you were starting a new religion, you would never write this stuff. <laughs> you wouldn't do it. I mean, your goal is success. Your goal is to get converts. Your goal is to get followers. You would never ever write what is recorded here. If you did, people would head for the hills. 
So let's look at it, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So far, this is unbelievable. This is a great idea. This is a missional idea. This is an idea ignited by the Holy Spirit himself. Getting a hold of Paul and saying, we're going again, brother. We're going. And Paul says, you can hear him. Barnabas, let's go deep in the gospel work where we've already been before. Can you hear it? I mean, let's go. Now, to fully get the impact of what we're about to look at, you got to know who Barnabas is. Who is he? Do you know who Barnabas is? Barnabas is Sam Ganji in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I guarantee you, Tolkien was thinking when he was writing the character Sam, he, he, it came out of Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas was Paul's dearest friend, his closest friend, his spiritual brother. Do you remember when Paul became a Christian? Nobody would touch him. Nobody. They feared him. They, they thought it was some act of trickery where he was going to get into the church and slaughter some more. Nobody would go near him. There was one man, only one man that said, I will stand by him. I will stand by what God has done in his life. I will stand with him. I will identify him. Barnabas put his name and his ministry on the line when he stood with Paul. The greatest apostle who ever lived had to have Barnabas. I mean, they were the team that went on the first missionary journey. They were the first ones to leave the spiritual nest of Antioch and Jerusalem and go to the world. You know, there was one constant in Paul's life. His whole life since he became a Christian, there was one constant. He was with Barnabas every single day. I mean, you're talking 16 years maybe? So when Barnabas hear, hears Paul's missional plans, he simply nods and says, yes, of course, brother, let's go. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they were separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed for Cyprus. Paul, though, he chose Silas and departed, and having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. This is absolutely shocking. It's completely unexpected. That is not how you begin a missionary journey. It's not hard to imagine the scene. Paul's type A. He's the multitasker. He's the OCD person. I mean, he's probably writing Galatians. He's probably praying. He's probably planning. He's probably talking all at the same time to Barnabas. And then Barnabas says, hey, Paul, let's take John Mark with us. Oh, man. Paul freezes. Crickets chirp. It gets real uncomfortable. We don't know the exact words of their exchange. Did you see that? Luke gives a summary of their exchange. He says, this is the highlights. Now, this is very, very strange because Luke is an exact person. He's a doctor. He's like an engineer. His whole book is exact. And in fact, in verse, the verse right before it, in verse 36, when he tells Paul's words of the missional plan, he gives it word for word. But then he leaves out the interaction that happens after you got to ask yourself, I mean, why did he do that? Can I give you my speculation? Here's my speculation. Pure, pure speculation. I think he thinks we couldn't handle it. 
I think if he was to write word for word what happened there, we would all be like, you know, there are some things that are best left unsaid. That's one of them, right? Don't do that to me. Don't turn my world upside down like that. Don't tell me I don't surrender all. The great second missionary journey begins with failure because here's the big idea that we're going to hear over and over again. Real ministry, fruitful ministry is always messy. Always. If you don't get that, and I don't get that like now or soon, you're going to go ministry insane. Ministry. Real, dynamic, effective, fruitful ministry is always messy. The people being ministered to are messy. The ones doing the ministry are messy. It's just one big mess. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you, we're going to look at Paul's thoughts, his evaluation of John Mark. And I'm going to give you the original language, literal translation in verse 38. Okay, you ready? But Paul was not counting him worthy to take along. I mean, that's so painfully blunt. This is a brutal evaluation. I mean, I'm embarrassed for Mark. Are you? It's embarrassing. And maybe that's why the ESV, the NAS, and the NIV, they smooth it out because it's just such a brutal evaluation. I mean, Paul is basically saying he's unworthy for ministry, Barnabas. He's unsuitable for ministry, Barnabas. He is a ministry failure, Barnabas. I can't imagine a more, I can't imagine a worse evaluation ever being said for someone in the history of the world that wants to pursue ministry. You know, if Jim Carrey, the comedian, was to evaluate me in my ministry gifts, how God's used me, and he gives me really, really low marks, I'd be like, who cares? If Dr. Hannah evaluated me and he said, he's a ministry failure, I don't know if I recover. Why such a low view of John Mark, verse 38? He's the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. In other words, John Mark quit. He deserted. He put up the white flag. Now, it's even worse. It says he quit right in the middle of ministry. That's Acts 13. You can see it. He leaves in the middle of the first missionary journey. He bails. He quits. He's done. He's a quitter. Paul continues, second reason, still in verse 38. He's the one who had not gone with them to the work. So he quit. He gave up and he deserted who? Them. The team. (laughs) He quit the team. Our culture today just doesn't get the team. Our culture today, what is, it, what is our culture value today? I mean, the highest potency of happiness, is it found in the individual and the individual's desires and agenda and control or in the team? Well, we know the answer to that. Our culture says it's always the individual. The individual has the highest meaning, their passions, their desires, what they feel they need, what their voice needs to be heard. It's always the individual, right? 
So today, John Mark would be seen as a hero because we'd say things like this. Look, he did what was best for him. He did what he needed to do because his voice wasn't being heard. His gifts and abilities weren't being utilized. He had no contribution. What Mark did was courageous. He quit for himself. In the ancient Near East, though, it was a different world. Doesn't mean it's necessarily best. But what the ancient Near East did is that it put its value and its meaning and its potency for happiness in the team. That's why if you were a Spartan and you went to battle and you survived and came home, but you didn't have your shield, it would have been better for you to be somewhere on the battlefield split open without a pulse. Because you coming home without your shield meant you quit the team. You quit Sparta. Because your shield protected this guy and protected this son and it protected that father. You are unworthy of a Spartan. You are unsuitable to be a Spartan. You're a quitter. The second great missionary journey begins with failure. Fateful ministry is always messy. What's wrong with John Mark? Have you wondered that? I mean, what happened to him? Like, what what happened? I mean, why did he do what he did? Why did he quit the team in Acts 13? And then why, why is Paul so... I don't know. I mean, so so intense. I mean, do you see that? I mean, what happened? Well, the consensus surrounds two possible answers. The first being that John Mark was just plain soft. So he was personally and spiritually weak. In other words, look, he just couldn't handle it. I mean, he couldn't do it. Ministry is too stressful, too demanding. The workload, it's just too difficult for him. He doesn't have the the personal fabric and the the character and the personal spiritual resources to actually do that kind of work. Do you know Tim Keller? Do you know what he said honestly once to a group of folks? And I thought it was unbelievable. I actually read it in a book. He said, when I accepted the call to do the church plant up in New York City, it became really, really clear to me that I did not have the spiritual maturity and character that was necessary for this kind of work. I needed the change. And I so appreciate that. Is that what's going on here? Well, I think that's not what's going on here. You know why? Because it's a weird explanation for me. First, Paul is never brutal on personal and spiritual weaknesses in anybody in the whole Bible. And in fact, he does just the opposite, doesn't he? He boasts in his weaknesses. And he boasts and he tells you and I to boast in our weakness. Because in our weakness, the power of God is revealed to be most clearly perfect. (coughs) Sufficient. And not only that, when he handles Corinthians who had such a personal and spiritual weakness in them, we would characterize them like the younger brother. They were indulged in sexual sin. They had (coughs) indulgences. They were pleasure seekers. They, They wanted to find, they went from one idea of fun to the next idea of fun. And they were riddled with all kinds of things. And Paul was patient with them. Paul was long suffering with them. And Paul preached the gospel to them. 
knowing that even their self-centered pursuit of pleasure was still a self-salvation tactic. And the only way to get them out of that functional savior and salvation was to give the grace of God to them. So that's how he treated them. He didn't treat them like this. He didn't treat them roughly like he does John Mark. Here's the other possible answer that that, uh, scholars say. There's two, right? So I gave you the first. The other is this. John Mark was a leader, an instigator of the troubling teaching in Acts 15. We're good? We're good. Fantastic. Great. We're good. He's good. All right, so the other is this. John Mark was a leader or instigator of the troubling teaching in Acts 15, which happens earlier in that chapter. You know what that means? John Mark was a Christian moralist. John Mark was the kind of person that didn't believe in too much grace. In other words, he said there's such a thing as too much grace. John Mark was like, that's a bad idea. Too much grace is a bad idea. So he actually was resisting Paul's gospel-driven vision and teaching of life and ministry. So when he bails in Pamphylia, he heads down to Jerusalem to stir up resistance against Paul's grace, gospel-driven teaching and life and ministry. That's what's happened to John Mark. (coughs) Now this explanation mirrors Paul's track record. He hits hard on those that have a law-driven view of life. Hard, Galatians, Judaizers, Peter. And he is gracious and compassionate and patient with those who have messy lives, who are spiritually and personally weak. <coughs> Sorry, y'all, I got bad sinuses. I told the earlier service, I guess I just need to accept it. I fight it, but I guess I have to accept it. I just have bad sinuses. All right, the second great missionary journey begins with failure. Fruitful ministry is always what? Messy. That's the point. But here's an application for it that we're getting hot off the text. Getting in the way of the grace of God is far worse than you having a messy life. Self-consciously putting yourself against the grace of God in teaching and life and a vision for ministry is worse than having a messy life. I could say it this way. The greatest disqualification for ministry is being self-consciously against a gospel-driven vision of life, teaching, and ministry. Not, not spiritual and personal weakness. The greatest disqualification is getting in the way of the grace of God. All right. What happens next is very uncomfortable for us, but I want you to take note of this. Nowhere in what happens next in verse 39 is it called sinful. So as we enter into it, remember, it's not called sinful. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The word for sharp disagreement is used in the New Testament for God's wrath. That's how... Um, powerful their disagreement was. It's not a disagreement. It's a fight. It's not physical blows, but it's intense. But again, notice nowhere 
is what happened there evaluated as sinful? And that's kind of interesting to me. Paul and Barnabas have a major fight, and it's not called sinful. Not only did they have a major fight, they had a major split. This is the first church split. And again, it's not called sinful. In fact, the first church split is almost commended in 39 and 40. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So again, the second Missionary journey, the great missionary journey changed the whole world. Starts with a failure because fruitful ministry is always, always messy. And here's the application for this passage. Sometimes there are good reasons for Christians to separate. Especially gospel reasons. And I would probably say only gospel reasons. All right. So what about John Mark? What do you do if you're John Mark? What do you do if you've blown your Christian witness and you're now a ministry reject? In the eyes of the greatest apostle who ever lived, the greatest ministry practitioner in the history of the world, his evaluation, you're a loser. So what do you do if you're John Mark? How do you come back from something like that? And then what do you do if you're Paul? I mean, how do you leave room for someone that has hurt you, has hurt others, and has hurt the gospel ministry? Do you leave room for them? What do you do if you're Barnabas? I mean, where is he in all this? What does he do? First of all, this is very, very important. In the end of Acts, in the end of the missionary journeys, in the end of Paul's life, John, Mark, and Paul team up again. And so does he with Barnabas. And what that means is, Paul even basically goes on to say, in the text, goes on to say, he's useful to me in gospel ministry, John, Mark. In other words, I like him again. And what this means, the implication is that no one is beyond gospel recovery. No one is beyond gospel repentance no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God no one and not only that what's happened now for John Mark he has now become a trophy of God's grace and so he now has a unique way that he can now boast in the grace of God his story is now unique what he went through and what God did to bring him back and to bring him and recover him and actually cause him to now sit more deeply and fully in the grace of God that is an incredible story that he now can boast in the grace of God and now he's tailor made to communicate effectively to people that have the same spiritual bio yeah I know exactly what you're going through brother I mean I I was a religious person for a long, long time, even when I was in church and even when I was on with Paul. And then I got the gospel and I just want to, I want to see if you understand what I'm talking about here. I boasted in my work. I boasted in my performance. I boasted in what I can do and I didn't even know it. Do you see this, the, the testimony he now has? 
Second, I want you to look at the phrase at the end uh, in, in verse 40 again. Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Do you know that there's nowhere in the Bible that we are ever commended to our performance? Nowhere. We are never commended to our work. Never commended to our self-effort. Nowhere. Nowhere are we ever commended to spiritual successes or even our spiritual failures. Nowhere are we ever commended to those. Nowhere are we ever commended to build our life around what we do or haven't done. We are only commended to the grace of the Lord. We are only commended to an unperformed love and work of Jesus. An unearned love and work of Jesus. In fact, a demerited, a demerited effort of the work and love of Jesus. Paul might have separated from John Mark, but Jesus never did. Jesus stood by John Mark when no one else did. Jesus pulled a Barnabas on John Mark. And he stood for him on the cross and took his place on the cross that all of John Mark's failure and quitting and desertion and resistance to the grace of God was all put on Jesus. And he took all of his shame and all of his failure and all of his unqualifiedness and he took it on himself and he stood there with him and crushed it for him. And then not only that, because of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was unleashed at the ascension. And so what Jesus did is he sent his spirit to him when he became a Christian. And even though the flame of his faith is not like a bonfire at A&M and it's more like a pilot light that's about ready to go out, it never went out. Never went out. And that Holy Spirit that Jesus had given and gives to all his people, even when it looks like it is in the worst, darkest, uh, most disruptive, visible realities of being gone, God is at work healing, restoring, recouping, bringing back. He never left his side. Jesus always stood by the spiritual failure. Because it's not about his performance. It's about Jesus' performance. So this great second missionary journey begins with failure, right? Ministry is always messy, but always growing in grace. Amen.